we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You are listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in the wilds of West Cork, in every episode, we investigate a story of the strange, a story of the mysterious, and sometimes uh, maybe even a movie or a book or a bit of fiction to do with the strange and the mysterious. In this particular episode, I'm going to be joined by my brother Donald to talk about the 1994 Kenneth Branagh version of Frankenstein. So that is a film that we both remember from childhood, one we are familiar with. And uh, in this episode, we're basically going to get down into the nuts and bolts of it. It's going to be spoilerific. We're going to be talking about the plot in quite a lot of detail. So if this is something you think you'd like to watch or you haven't seen it, I do recommend watching it before listening. Um, And I think you will enjoy the podcast just a little bit more. But if it's not the sort of thing you ever think you would watch, if you're not a fan of that particular era of films or if it's just not your kind of thing, then go ahead and listen anyway. We'll explain everything that's going on in the film regardless. So the beer for this episode is from the Crafty Brewing Company uh, and it's uh, just called Irish Stout. And uh, if I was to read the text from the label here, it says... This full-bodied stout has a discerning coffee and chocolate aroma, which is true. The depth of flavour is attributed to a high bittering hop and chocolate malt and a short favourite with any refined palate. I'm enjoying it. Does that mean I have a refined palate? I sure hope so. It is from Rye River Brewing, which is from a town called Selbridge, which I believe is in Kildare. Now, one message I want to read out. This is from Cindy, who listens from the US, and she says, Have you researched or created content about Oswald Mosley and the Battle of Cable Street? So this is probably in in reference to some of our recent episodes about uh, the militia movement. Um, he So o- o- Oswald Mosley had an interesting trajectory of democratic liberal leanings to fascism and... Actually, I have read a little bit about Mosley. If if you're if you're listening from the UK, you probably have heard of this guy. He's kind of infamous, but basically, he was involved in sort of like British fascism movements in the 1930s. And the Battle of Cable Street is this kind of almost mythological event in British history where it's perceived that a a large amount of just ordinary citizens uh, kind of fought off a group of fascists who were marching or presenting or something. Uh, I, I believe the true story is a little more complex than that. It is the sort of thing we might touch on at some point in the future. I will say that Oswald Mosley has come up for me personally recently when I was reading about Dennis Wheatley for the Devil Rides Out episode. Because Dennis Wheatley, if you may remember, if you've heard that episode, was kind of mixed up in some appeasement type politics and and he was mixing with appeasement type people in London in the 1930s and of course the appeasement movement um, was supported by some of the English hard right and uh, sort of British fascist people. Most interestingly he seems to have been connected or at least knew socially uh, the the man known as Lord Haw Haw who uh, was a uh, kind of like a pseudo-Irish guy who uh, had this kind of upper class British accent and uh, eventually went off to live in... He, he was he was a fascist, basically, with a, a hideous scar on his face. 
from I think being attacked during a, a scuffle when he was breaking up I think at some sort of communist meeting in London in the 30s and he went off to to Berlin and um, basically created propaganda for the Nazis I- I through the medium of English and the British public gave him the name Lord Haw Haw because of his his accent so uh, Lynch his real name was he was a very interesting guy so Oswald Mosley might be on our on our list at some point so thanks for that Right, that's all I have to say for the opening. As always, you can get in touch with us um, online on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So this is myself and my brother, who is, of course, now Dr. Donald Gill, talking about Kenneth Branagh's 1994 Frankenstein. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I think actually it's, it's Francis Ford Coppola's, Kenneth Branagh's, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Frankenstein. I've, monster. I've definitely heard that joke somewhere on a podcast. I, I wasn't going to go there, but I can't remember who said it, so I can't credit. Well, but this yeah, is, it's, it's this it's, it's is his through. sort of um, labor of love, isn't it? This is his project. He makes sure to be, for himself, to be in, in it as the main character, getting a shirt off whenever he can. Yeah, this is Abs Branagh. He's gone the he's gone the whole hog. He's absolutely given it the welly. He's directing, apparently he's starring, of course. He chews up the scenery. He does ample soliloquies. Um, I was watching this with my wife again during the week, and Nadia, who of course you know, and she said, like, God, he's talking to himself a lot, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> it's just because Branagh must turn everything into some version of Shakespeare, even if neither the material is uh, up to it nor uh, appropriate. If you were uh, if you were going to see this in the cinema in 1994, what did you, what did you know about Branagh? What was he known for at this time? Shakespeare. Yeah, he, so he was someone who was kind of fairly well known for taking Shakespeare off of the stage and onto the screen. And he had done Henry V and Hamlet already and given himself starring roles and directed. I don't know about how involved he was with the, the scripts or screenplays for those. Um, but yeah, he was essentially thought of as a highbrow thespian, in particular as a like a what would you call it, like a um, a bit of a whisper, a Shakespeare whisperer for Hollywood. In my head, his uh, Shakespeare adaptations have always been like the the one from uh, Last Action Hero, <laughs> you know, where they're all action movies, and he smokes cigars and says not to be. But uh, where, I, I presume he wasn't like that. No, they made us watch his version of Hamlet in secondary school when we did it for the Leaving Cert. And it was, uh, even then, as someone who didn't exactly understand the difference between subtle acting and method acting or whatever, he was chewing up the scenery. And it was like, I remember at one stage he was giving one of the famous speeches from Hamlet and, and while we were being shown this in class. And we had all read this already. And, you know, we were kind of like, I remember my English class was quite in on Hamlet. Like the teacher had secured buy-in. You know, we liked it. And everybody came out of it remembering lines and everything. But he was delivering one of the speeches and we all just laughed at him because he was kind of like, it was pearl clutching, uh, you know. Of course, Hamlet is a famously indecisive character, so that's not exactly off base. But just the way he did it again, it was left in the oven for about 10 or 15 minutes too long. So, so this coming out in 1994, like whatever, his, whatever Branagh's own background interest, we see him as a guy with an interest in classical plays and literature this might be on brand and yet there's absolutely no way on earth that he's not responding to the gigantic gigantic success of 1992's 
Coppola's Dracula. And there was clearly something in the air. This was a time when a lot of these classic monsters were getting new film versions. A couple of years after this, there would be a, a, re, a remake of Jekyll and Hyde starring John Malkovich. It's called Mary, Mary Riley, and it's got Julia Roberts doing another terrible Irish accent in it. So there, were, there was a kind of a small clutch of these films at this time. So bit of a bit of a zeitgeist, I suppose. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but my, my feeling is that by the early 90s, the kind of the, the 80s slasher phase was done and dusted and it felt very old hat. And so there was a, a kind of an opening for a new way of going at horror or dealing with horror or whatever. And obviously Francis Ford Coppola went into that with super high concept Dracula movie with Gary Oldman and Keanu Reeves. And he produced this version of Frankenstein and was on, originally on board to direct and he recruited Branagh to star as Frankenstein. And in one of their initial meetings, Branagh kind of overwhelmed him with his enthusiasm and vigor for the project to the point where Francis Ford Coppola just said, okay, no problem. Like you can, you can take the reins here. I noticed his name showing up as executive producer or something. Yeah. I presume he was probably fairly hands-off though, was he? Yeah, I think, again, his, his original plan was to be hands-on and, and kind of be the point man on this. But Branagh just, I think, consumed everything in his wake and just made this his baby pretty much totally. Uh, to the point where, like, the primary screenwriter, Frank Darabont, who's pretty famous. He's the guy who did The Walking Oh, yeah, The Dead Mist, and, yeah. And um, Shawshank Redemption and stuff. That's right, so he yeah. wrote the script for this and he... Uh, was appalled with the final result. And actually, almost everyone except Brana ended up um, like disowning this movie because the end result was just, was just a big Brana fest. And he did extensive um, rewrites on the, on the Darabont script, which I think is par for the course. Like, I don't think that's unusual, but Darabont felt like he was looking at maybe... Uh, Frankenstein's monster of a script. Whoa. <laughs> well, I, I'm a gigantic fan of like Coppola's Dracula. And, you know, after years and years of just thinking it was a bit, a bit campy and a bit silly, mostly because of Keanu Reeves, like I finally come around to enjoying it and embracing it. And it is very stylized. It's very over the top. And there's some, there, like you say, there's some high concept stuff going on with Coppola like deciding to use like turn of the century filmic techniques to do all his special effects in camera as much as possible and and just great use of sort of matte paintings and stuff to establish this sort of never never land of you know like spooky mystical orientalist eastern europe and turn of the century gothic london and all that stuff that's really in my, in my wheelhouse and i really enjoy all that stuff and a lot of iconic imagery with Gary Oldman's ridiculous hairdo. And, and you know, as, as stupid as that is, it's memorable. And I, while I enjoyed Frankenstein, it feels a lot more flat by comparison. Like the cinema photography is very stilted. There's, there are far fewer sort of memorable sets and, and it, it didn't feel like they, the locations were opened up. I, this film really needed some more like matte paintings to establish that the slightly mystical, you know, Central European setting and stuff. I don't know. It for me, Branagh probably, wasn't the problem. It was it was some of the surrounding world building that needed a little little more. I I, I think well. So I am kind of half in agreement with you there. So I do think that um, they could have better established the kind of quote unquote universe and that the world feels very flat. I don't agree that the camera work is flat. I think actually the camera work is 
it's it's uh, erratic and hectic and it's kind of very it's passionate and romantic which is kind of one of the themes or the kind of philosophical basis of the novel um but in a way that's just it's not technically up to par just i think brana's direction is not up to task um i actually think that there's some very it's not there isn't necessarily so many um you know big match shots or anything but there are panoramic vistas of the snow from helicopter which is amazing yeah this the swiss mountains look look good and the he's at the frankenstein house is wonderful and that interior set with the blue room with the giant staircase it's such a weird set that's bizarre I, that's, I i would love to know is that a thing from 17 uh you know 70s geneva or whatever is that like is yeah. that what people actually in the upper class or the barons? Because this is but that's a, that's a, a rather memorable and iconic set, and I, that that bit, oh, that room always stuck with me from when I was a kid. I, but then when they get to like Ingolstadt and and it it's like oh, it seems like they almost found some castle with like one wall, one, and they filmed everything. Let's stand in front of this wall, and there and is it, a lot of that. Uh, I will say though, like on on again to just go to bat for a little bit, they. It does feel very small and it does feel very tight, but I think that there's a feeling of claustrophobia invoked there, which is kind of useful since Frankenstein creates his monster while the city's being evacuated for a cholera outbreak. And so like they have these narrow streets, which would have been obviously what the streets were like at the time. And you've got kind of packed people all crammed on top of each other and there's dead people and animals and everything. And I, you know, it gives a feeling of, of claustrophobia, which is kind of interesting for a, kind of plague or pandemic-y kind of circumstances. Obviously, we can relate to that today. We'd better do a, nice a, quick, a quick rundown. So spoilers, this episode will be spoiler heavy, of course. I'm sure most people are familiar or at least think they're familiar with the overall story, but we're going to be going into the details here. So by and large, I'd recommend you watch this before uh, listening if you, if you haven't or if somehow you are not familiar with the basics of of the Frankenstein story, but let's do a quick plot rundown. And I guess I'm interested in how how closely this does tie to the original novel, because I've tried to read it at different times over the years, but it, it, I read a lot of Victorian stuff and, and this one is just a bit earlier. I find this period, I find that, that this style of writing more difficult, difficult to get through myself. Yeah, it's, it's very different from later 19th century writing. Um, okay, so I just have a quick uh, plot summary here. So in 1794 in the Arctic Sea, Captain Robert Walton is a man obsessed to re reach the North Pole, pushing his crew to exhaustion. When his ship hits an iceberg, it is stranded in the ice. Out of the blue, Captain Walton and his men overhear a dreadful cry, and they see a stranger coming to the ship. He introduces himself as Victor Frankenstein, and he tells the captain the story of his life since he was a little boy in Geneva. Victor is a little, uh, sorry, Victor is a brilliant student and in love with his stepsister Elizabeth, an orphan that was raised by his father, Baron Frankenstein. In 1793, Victor moves to Ingolstadt to study at the university and he promises to get married to Elizabeth upon his return. At the university, Victor befriends Henry Clerval, who becomes his best friend. Victor gets close to Professor Waldman, uh, played by John Cleese with big buck teeth put in, and decides to create life to cheat death. But Waldman advises him that he should not try this experiment since the results would be an abomination. When Waldman dies, Victor steals his notes and tries to create life once more. He succeeds and gives life to a strong creature composed of parts of deceased people. However, he realizes that his experiment is a mistake and he abandons the creature expecting that it will die alone. However, the creature survives and learns how to read and write, but he is a monster rejected by society and his own creator. The creature decides to seek revenge from Victor by killing everyone he loves. Now, if, I, if I'm correct, this is largely in line with the beats of the novel. 
un- until maybe one one change late in the game. Yeah, so the two the two primary deviations really are at the end when he creates the bride. That that doesn't really happen in the same way in the novel. It kind of doesn't. It's, it's this. It get, there's there's kind of two primary ways I would say in which this movie, which is trying pretty hard to be uh, loyal or you know kind of a to maintain fidelity to the source text, kind of can't help but go down the route of paying tribute to the original Universal movie. So one is where we get a very kind of 1933 style Bride of Frankenstein scene, and then. Uh, also, the monster creation scene is totally different in the book. It takes like it takes Frankenstein like two years, and he has to like kind of essentially almost like build the parts where and there's no lightning. It's all it's all very much left in the dark. But that's part of the style of the writing is that your imagination is supposed to do the work, and the terror comes from the obscurity almost, right? And that's that's a principle of the the sublime, which we can talk about later, which is that. Uh, when you don't know the full story, your imagination is always worse than what anyone could ever tell you. Um, so those are like those are two like the creation scene is very similar to the 1931 James Whale kind of version. I, I agree, in as much as the original novel, which I mean I've, I've revisited bits of it, is is very sketchy on those details and provides you with almost none. And it's funny that Frankenstein is remembered as this kind of foundational proto science fiction story when. It's incredibly light on the science, and I would, I would, I would hesitate to even say that there's any science in it because we learn practically nothing about how Victor Frankenstein makes the creature, and it's it's almost presented as more of an occult thing than a science thing. And a lot of the, a lot of the technological aspects of the story come from the the, the films. You know, that's when we think of all the lightning and everything. I, as well as that, though, I think that Branagh is definitely trying to. Like some of the film's iconic imagery, which is cool and memorable, is him trying to be different. Like the, he doesn't have the lightning, well he does, but that's not what animates the monster. He's instead well, got this it, weird womb it, thing it, with the amniotic fluid and the, and the electric eels. Like it's, it's weird, it's eccentric. I feel like that's him going out of his way to come up with a different process. Yeah, there is, it is lightning that animates the, the bride though. That is like lightning that hits the roof of his Geneva home. I so interpret again, that I, as there was a storm that was unconnected to like just there for dramatic reasons. And he, he, cause he still had the, am I wrong? Did he not have the machine, the big bellows thing that contained the electric eels? He, di- he didn't have the electric eels. He had everything else. Okay, fair enough. So, the so storm, that's, that's and a you, there was, the hat. There was a kind of a platomatic scene earlier on in the movie where he, he uh, shows them that he's a, he knows when storms are coming and he That's can predict true. them. And then he can conduct the electricity through kites and all this. And there's a super chimpo moment where himself and his two kind of sisters all, they they conduct the electricity and then move their fingers and you hear some bzz, bzz, and which, some, like, which drawn would totally on the happen, screen. <laughs> yeah, drawn on the screen, blue lightning, kind of like, you know, you have in the, at the start of Terminator when he... Like Emperor that. Palpatine lightning. <laughs> Yes, ex- yes, exactly. Um, I want to um, talk about the, the, the wraparound sections with, with, with the captain, the sea captain Walton, because, man, I, I'm massively into sort of polar gothic, if that's the right phrase. Like, I love, I love these old stories where the poles are this, like, inaccessible, mysterious place. Therefore, you know, if you go there, you will find, you know, you'll find these strange stories. You'll find these, these cast out individuals, these people who have these incredible stories or, or something like the history of weird fiction is full of 
of weird stuff. You know, Edgar Allan Poe wrote about this. Um, that Mountains of Madness is a classic one as late as the 1930s. And we, we talked recently about the, the terror because you're a fan of the show and I'm a fan of the book. And, and this idea that, all, you know, for, for literally hundreds of years, people were trying to get to the Northwest Passage and it was a symbol of, you know, man pushing himself too far and sacrificing all of his crew, like, like, like the captain in this story does. And um, I, I quite like that. It's... Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting, like that's, so that wraparound is something from the book that, you know, was essentially discarded by every previous film version of the story. And I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm not sure any movie adaptation since this has ever bothered to put it in. But I think thematically it does some, some work. It connects the core kind of things where you have science, nature, technology, and the ambition of humanity to either use these things are to conquer these things. And especially the idea of like science can give us technology, which can then help us conquer nature. And, you know, these things are frequently kind of cautionary parables of the limits natural and proper to humanity, but through our own hubris and lack of understanding of our proper place in the universe, right? Yeah. This all goes back to original sin, right? Like grabbing the apple when you've been told not to. So hubris is absolutely the term here. And, and in Captain Walton, like... I mean, obviously, this was still a thing. This was a, a relevant and contemporary thing when Mary Shelley was writing. But now we, we watch his doomed expedition, knowing what happened to Shackleton, knowing what happened to the Franklin expedition. It's very loaded, you know, in 1994. Yeah, and coming with hundreds of years of, of disastrous expeditions with these guys yeah, trying and, to push and, themselves and, to become famous or, or to, to service humanity for the knowledge of man. And there's, there's an opening scrawl. So there's two things that happen at the start of the movie that are interesting. So one is you have a, um, a kind of um, a narration by what we can presume is Mary Shelley in a famous kind of thing that she wrote in a letter saying, like, here's why I wrote Frankenstein. Because, of course, there was a contest between her and a few friends to write who could come up with the most scary tale. And so she says something like, oh, you know, I pondered upon this and came up with the thing that uh, a, a tale so terrible it would make people's bones chill. That was, blood that, that's when... Um... Dr. Polidori wrote uh, Slenderman, wasn't it? That's, that's where I that story know, comes from. There, were, there was a bunch of them away on a kind of one of those grand tour style <laughs> trips because, of course, she was mar married to Percy Shelley, who was, you know, a famous poet and all that as well. And they would have had a couple of other literary heads in amongst the group. And then, and she was just, she was 18 when she wrote it and it was published when she was 20. So it was kind of like a, a shot from the dark. But so you get that. And then there's, a, there's an opening crawl of text and there's a bunch of actually fun lines there, but one of the things that it said that I took note of was it says, at the dawn of the 19th century, the drive for knowledge had never been greater. And so then, of course, what we're getting is, as you rightly say, Kian, is the link between the desire to overcome natural limitations, such as, you know, go getting to the poles, but then also the drive to overcome natural limitations, such as mortality and life and death and all that. So the link thematically between what uh, Walton is doing and what Frankenstein is doing is pretty, you know, pretty much there on the face. Yeah. Uh, and it's not subtle, but it there. works. It's effective. And yeah, he, he, it's, what's, what's that? Aidan Quinn, is it? Is the captain? Aidan Quinn, yeah. Good old Harry Boland. <laughs> Harry Boland. <laughs> he, has, he has a fine paddy head on him, I must say. Yeah, uh, he does. I remember in the 90s, he was kind of a bit of a perennial kind of face. We, I remember, like, I actually thought he was Irish when I was a kid or something, because he would often be in Irish movies or playing Irish characters. He was also in Legends of the Fall, which was a bit of a RTE1 Wednesday night, kind of a classic. Um, 
there's also a good scene here. So when, when the, when the, um, when the ship is stuck in the ice and they hear the, the terrible uh, scream and they're wondering who is it that's going to come out of the, the mist, right? They can't see anything because there's just a big blizzard and everything. And as the Frankenstein character, he's draped in a big massive cloak and he's pulling a sled and he's mysterious and nefarious in certain ways or whatever. And that's kind of like, again, the, the individual emerging out of the storm, um, out of obscurity, out of the kind of the boundless um you know possibilities of nature that's a classic image of the sublime so again that's brana i think doing the right thing by paying proper homage to the philosophical context of the novel um and edmund burke great irish philosopher wrote on the sublime in a book called a philosophical inquiry into the origins of our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful so this was written in 1759 so over the next couple of decades this really seeps into ideas of romantic, like the romantic worldview, which was a, a kind of a movement across music and arts and literature or whatever. And it's all about the, the sensations of the world. So Robert, when, was, like, you have the, yeah. when was Rousseau? Was he this period? Is he romantic? Uh, yeah, Rousseau is a very important proto-romantic as well. Romanticism is really more of a 19th century movement, but you have the, the um, seeds of it in the later enlightenment. So enlightenment really starts 1750. And the enlightenment is all about rationality and the power of the human mind and all that and our, our thinking right and then the romantic is well we're also feeling beings we're feeling we're creatures of passion and emotion and those emotions and passions are kind of drawn out by our, by our experiences of the natural world and so the, you've got this kind of tension rousseau is a big part of the the Did he, was of, he I suppose, the the noble savage idea was that him too or yeah, like the that, yeah that, that had existed previously but rousseau definitely kind of you know spoken in, in that language as well so one of the things that burke says about the sublime uh is that it's it's about the heightened and elevated experience of nature especially this idea of transcendence um and it's all about terror he calls terror the ruling principle of the sublime so this is why we this is why it's so important to horror and to to what will then become gothic um kind of literature and, and other movements and he he talks about it as related to the, ex the experience of possible danger. And some of the, the kind of themes that relate to this are like vastness, darkness, vacuity, silence. He says the gloomy forest, the howling wilderness. So again, Frankenstein screams at them or ho hollow, uh, what's the word, bellows at them from out in the obscure kind of wilderness. And uh, you know, wild animals are a big part of this. And so you kind of get the, in, like Frankenstein is both that Frankenstein, the character, is both like a, a person of the Enlightenment committed to rationality, science, technology, and all this, overcoming what would have been seen as insurmountable limitations, but also he's kind of existing in a world of the sublime and the romantic where nature is an untamable force. And that when we're confronted with that, with the, with the again, the howling wilderness and the, this is where like the word awesome comes from. Not like just like, ah, oh, this is really good. It's like you're in awe, right? Yeah. It's, the feeling of the Cliffs of Moher, when you remember we went to the Cliffs of Moher and the wind was so strong that they broke it broke James's glasses. Remember that? <laughs> yes, yes. That's yeah. that's that, and you're just like, wow, I could be blown off this cliff, and I'm powerless, and it doesn't matter how many PhDs or how many doctorates or what MDs I have. You know, like it doesn't matter how smart we are and how many movies from the '90s we watch. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. the wind comes for you, you're fucked, and that's it. You know. And so I think like that scene where Frankenstein comes out of the wilderness, 
I think is actually that's Branagh should have done more of that. That's a good moment. That's uh, that's um, doing some heavy lifting for for both the novel and also just like thematically and philosophically, like for what this kind of stuff gets at. So the captain finds Frankenstein, who has, who is he, he's uh, he's been out on the ice chasing the monster, and he's haggard, and he he tells him a terrifying story about how Newt Gingrich once created a beast from the magas, which he then couldn't control. Oh, no, wait, sorry, no. He tells him about creating the Frankenstein monster. <laughs> There's a couple of class lines right at the start, right? So um, they, he, he, all the, the sailors are like, what's going on with this lad anyway? So uh, Aidan Quinn takes him into the, to the hull or whatever, into, the, into his bedroom and lies him down. And, and Kenneth, Kenneth Brown has got the thousand yard stare, right? Because he's gone mad. <laughs> and he asks him, like, what are you guys doing out here? You know, only crazy people who are hunting monsters like me should be out here. And then he tells him, like, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, conquer the North Pole and blah, blah, blah. And so Kenneth Branagh immediately, right, signals to Frankenstein that they're like-minded soul. He says, if we succeed, our names will live on forever. So there's the hubris, right? Again, so in his own way, he wants to transcend death. He wants to live forever. And then Frankenstein says in a big old ham, hammy, hammy, ham, ham line. Is, is it like says, a, you fool, <laughs> how could you? Not quite, not quite. That comes later. But he <laughs> yeah. says, do you share my madness? <laughs> <laughs> so that was top notch. Love that. I was immediately on board. And then so then uh, uh, Adrian, Aiden Quinn says like, what, what, what's up? What are you talking about? So then he says, let me take you back to Geneva, 1773 <laughs> or whatever. I remember some, it like it was yesterday. There's some bad lines in the opening scenes where he's, he's hanging out with his mother or whatever. Ever. So he's, he's doing his, his studies to try and get into university. And his mother is like, oh, Victor, do you remember when you were a child and you would capture uh, fireflies? Yeah. And he'd say, of course, mother, and they'd die in the glass. Oh, no. And it's like, oh, Victor, you're already tampering with things you shouldn't be messing with. Yeah, and they're just, they're just like telling each other things they both know. <laughs> so Victor now that you're off to study to become a doctor so that you can I, you know prolong life I also think that Kenneth Branagh is probably studying at like Beverly Hills 90210 high school because he's <laughs> not a teenager you'd be <laughs> he's thankful at least he's, he's still wearing a shirt at this point because that's that's about to change there's two, yeah there's two things that kind of get worse for Branagh as the movie goes on one is he decides to just go to Abtown <laughs> on a repeated basis where he's just he's very proud of his his, uh, his slender kind of uh, greyhound-esque physique and abs so the top has to come off a lot and he does a lot of swatting around in that and then the other thing is that he starts off with a fairly decent kind of late 1770s central european hairdo but later on it's just like a full-blown 1993 mullet he might as well be in the wwf ready to do the job for crush or someone or diesel it's brutal he's fully mulleted up by about the midpoint there's a few heads in his immediate family his, his father is ian holm which is always always pleasant to see who, who actually oh, has done a bunch of stuff like this before i mean he was in he was in from hell which is i suppose victorian and he's done a few other bits and pieces like this and obviously then his um his adopted sister or cousin or whatnot is uh, Helena Bonham Carter, which interesting to see her doing this pseudo-Gothic thing that has nothing to do with Tim Burton for once. Uh, yeah, she's putting in a, she's putting in a decent enough performance, I think. She's, I mean, I have more to say about her later, 
but I think ultimately she's not given a lot to work with. And so it's hard to fault her per se. I do think that probably the gender politics of the movie are a bit whack. Um, I think they, they try to have a bit of a feminist moment later on. Yeah, um, I, that occurred but, to me as well. I, I wondered what you think of it. But it's, yeah, it's not great. And overall, she's very flat. Like she is, she exists to be a love interest. Uh, she's denied agency for most of the movie. And Kenneth Branagh's um, kind of biological sister is just a cardboard cutout who, you know, exists to get ha- hanged later on. She has no character at all. And there's lots of like, she, again, this is part of his attempt and it's ham-fisted, I think. But he's trying, God love him, to invoke these ideas of the passionate and emotion-based worldview of, of romanticism, where like she literally holds his love letters and swans around those massive rooms. Yeah. Uh, and even out in the Swiss kind of Alps, and they're walking around in the muck. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. They're just getting like, there's lovely green fields and they're down next to the water walking in the muck. And she's holding on to the love letter, literally like moving her shoulders and, and her head is going all over the place. Oh, Victor. <laughs> It's very much just like, you know, I am passionate lady who fe- has feelings it's, for it's a man theatrical. who's off it feels doing like, It feels like theatre and, and that's compounded by, to me anyway, the, the way that the sets are and the way the, the camera work is in a way that's different to Coppola's Dracula. Like they're both very staged and very artificial, but this one feels more like a, almost like a play or, well, or something. It's like, here's, here, here's the disconnect for me. They're acting not just like it's a play, but like it's a Christmas pantomime. And they're yeah, like- like a very old fashioned, the, broad style of play. They're blowing the faces off of Rose Ed. Like, I think the people in the very back of the theater are getting like the pinky in the brain on the roller coaster treatment at some of the overacting, you know? Or like, especially <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. And the thing about it is that would be one thing if you had a flat camera, like, you know, a wrestling style hard cam, just like plonked in front of the ring. But the camera is moving constantly. It never stops moving going bananas and so it's frequently it's swirling in and around characters moving around back of their head front of their head long shots close shots but like on one kind of fluid movement and it's it's kind of exasperating because you have the overactive camera and the overacting from especially Helena Bonham Carter but Ian Holm is dreadful too like he's <laughs> absolute I mean he might as well be acting in 1770s you know I like, like, I like him group. he he He's got he's got a soft face and he's likable because he's you know he's got tenure he's been on the on the yeah you know him from a bunch years, of other but... cozy properties that you like so do you know later on when when the when the boy is killed and he just like fades and goes to bed yeah it's fucking brutal like he's <laughs> all right let's get let's get Victor to uh, to to college so we can <laughs> so there's a there's a pretty hammy bit where his mother dies in childbirth uh, giving giving um birth to uh, Frankenstein's young brother. And there's a bit of a, again, some dodgy, perhaps gender politics where she says very clearly, like, let me die, save the baby. It's kind of, you know, again, a bit of a women are baby machines moment. And then uh, after that, there's a dreadfully hammy moment where Frankenstein again starts to, uh, you know, signal where he's going. He says, oh mother, you should never have died. No one need ever die. I will stop this. I will stop this. <laughs> just, just, it's a, you're, it, making that's like sound like, you're making him sound like Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> uh, I suppose that's an Irish person trying to do an English accent. But it's like, that's Trump levels of uh, subtext as text. You know, just saying, you know, like, 
absolutely no subtlety. No one need ever die. It's like, oh man. And again, even if he's, if, if it's, if that's what's it's said in the book, I can't remember if that is, I, I doubt oh, it. And then he like, he goes across the, like to get to, to get to university in, in Ingolstadt, he like, see, they, they make it look as if he actually has to cross the Alps, like going across this trackless waste by himself in the middle of this wasteland. And then he looks out and he says, oh, Ingolstadt, and then we don't see it. And it just cuts to like Sedzilla. And it's just like, come on, guys, that's where we needed the wonderful, you know, evocative matte painting. That's where Albert Whitlock needs to come in and do this kind of slightly fairy tale-esque, you know, medieval looking town with, with towers and bulb, bulb onion domes. And instead we just not, not cut to like generic city square set number four. They, they, they do that for, uh, a, I think the reason for that is they want a kind of a parallel callback where later on when De Niro's monster is traversing this, the frozen Swiss tundra again, and he's going over the Alps and he's up. But like you're telling me there isn't like a road he could have gone to that, you know, <laughs> went from town to town to get to this city. He had to well, cross it, may, the it, it, it makes sense that the monster would be up in the Yeah, mountains. yeah, for the a, monster, yeah. He wants yeah. to hide from people, and B, he doesn't know the roads or whatever. He's no one to tell him. Brana, I don't know why Frankenstein <laughs> would do that, but I think the reason why they do that is because later in the movie, when Frankenstein, the monster, is coming to get his revenge on Frankenstein, he goes through the, like, knee-high snow, and then at some point he goes, Geneva. <laughs> Maybe I'm conflating the two. Maybe... Perhaps I'm, I'm doing... There's, there's, there's a version of it in both sides. It's again, it's a kind of a parallel callback. Um, I th- this was around the point where I started to like, I was getting tired of Branagh's ego. Like <laughs> he's, he's lapping himself up big time. He's high in his own supply. He's very much enjoying the centrality that he has in this. The camera's luxuriating upon him a lot. Lots of close-up shots of his face while he's kind of furiously... Um, frowning and thinking and it's all very Branna centric which I think like people say that that's a thing in his movies where he tends to give himself these plum rolls and and fetishize himself but it's again because it's not like a Shakespeare movie where he's the undisputed master of the of the genre or whatever it's just it's even worse here I think you could imagine him on set talking to the cinematographer being like it's called Frankenstein I'm Frankenstein (laughs) point that thing at me this this was you know he would have these rare conversations with the cinematographer when the cinematographer wasn't actually you know manning the camera and running around the set to get all those uh crazy insane looping shots but this is where he goes to Ingolstadt and this is where we get two class things which is first of all his lab is unreal yeah it is it's a good set it's a it's a big old kind of uh, a frame roof building uh uh, roof in a building or an attic almost and uh, he rents it from a Frau, who he calls Frau. This <laughs> is classic. Pity she and isn't holding like, a Steiner of beer, but you know, close enough. They're all they're all so hyper English, and then he's just like he throws out a Frau, and it's like, oh yeah, this is supposed to be uh, a German. How do you think world. like everybody in every historical society spoke? They spoke in like upper class English, unless they're like street rabble, in which they they talk like Cockneys. <laughs> in every country, I a, I, every civilization. I, I had an argument years and years and years ago with our mutual friend Owen about which was kind of more stupid uh, in these kind of historical dramas where, you know, they're supposed to be in non-English speaking countries. Is it more stupid for them to all be speaking English in English accents or is it more stupid for them to be speaking English with German accents where he's like, yeah, well, the, the classic example where that didn't happen was the, was the Alexander film where it, because Colin Farrell is the main role, 
um, Oliver Stone has all of the what what group of people is he from? The Macedonians. They're all played by Irish actors, which makes about as much sense as having them all speak with upper class English accents. But if you are Irish, it's tremendously distracting because all these bit part actors from old Irish soaps are showing up. And yeah, um, they should have known that when they hired Miley, that was not <laughs> going to allow us to take anything seriously. Or like try to Miley get Val Kilmer to do a terrible Irish accent. <laughs> like we we know that. If you see Miley trying to, you know, play a role in ancient Greece, like the, the pigs need to be fed. And there's just is, is, is the second the awesome thing that we get in Ingolstadt when he goes to university and then we get those those fantastic college education scenes where the lecture room is like a like a tower with lots of layers where the students are like sticking their heads over the layers and the lecturer is down at the very bottom in this tiny little box. Yeah, it's I love unreal. Those. I'm, I'm, I like I, I will give an extra star to any movie that has a round lecture theater, especially with what they call the sage on the stage. That's that's like it's in, in pedagogical kind of circles. It's that's what you're not supposed to do anymore. Guide, be the guide that. on the side, not the sage on the stage. <laughs> yeah. So they don't want you to be like this kind of um, central source of, of authoritative knowledge again my favorite film that does this is is probably from hell where you've got those the only thing that was missing was like at the end of the lecture the the students didn't all like uh, express their gratitude by like knocking and rapping on the, on the sides <laughs> that's the classic thing yeah i like i like as well when you see what they sometimes have it in uh, operating theaters and everybody's watching again like, I, i've no theater. idea if that is based on a real historical thing or not i've only seen it in films I couldn't couldn't care less. It's so class. I'm yeah. just all in on it anyway. Yeah. The, they also have a conspicuous shot of the motto of the university, which is uh, kind of in stone uh, in English. Oh, nice. oh I see what, you, see what they've done there. And it, it is, uh, knowledge is power only through God. So again, this is going to be what Frankenstein challenges. Um, again, I was couldn't help but notice like they have a bunch of kind of university students around and Brana is just like, 15 years older than all of them. He's such an old lad. I mean, look, there were mature students when I went in as a as, a, as an 18 year old into university, but I didn't see any kind of brands. Big fan as well of the chubby faced old geezer lecturer. So he represents the the old world. He's the footy duddy establishment. And he's he's kind of got the extremely heavy handed received pronunciation. Oh, and he and he, to, yeah, he gives a total yeah. like, you're not here to come up with new ideas. You're here to take on board the orthodox thinking. He, he says to, um, to uh, Frankenstein, you must learn to submit yourselves to the established rules of physical reality. <laughs> and then when, when Brana challenges him, Frankenstein is like, but what about this? What about that? Why, why aren't we allowed to think for ourselves? And he says, another Swiss. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, yeah. So I, so I guess and he's like, oh, Mr. Geneva, is it? <laughs> and they all laugh at him as if he's like, he scored a really good one against Frankenstein. Oh, everyone knows those folks from Geneva. Like, they're just infamous. And so Frankenstein then says, well, what about the ancient texts of X, Y, and Z? So again, like, this is kind of where it's like, it's not especially science-y. It's more, there's kind of some ancient knowledge that's in the past that we've decided to let go because, again, it's too dangerous or whatever. Again, the word used by the, the Professor Waldman characters, it's an abomination. He, al he also uh, says occult, but he pronounces it occult, which bonus points yes. for that. Yeah, We yeah. don't deal with that, yeah. that's occult. He says, <laughs> we do not study the ravings of lunatics and alchemists. Yeah, but like, okay, I want to talk about this because 
I mean, this is a period in time, you, you mentioned the Enlightenment, obviously, but honestly, even, even this late in the game, like mid, mid to late 1700s, you, you might have a different take on this, but like my understanding is that science and you know, other, other kinds of understanding, which we might now describe as a sort of mysticism, were not as separate as we, like at least as far as the 1600s, 100%, like people like Isaac Newton, we now call them scientists, but honestly, truthfully, a lot of what he was doing was literally alchemy. And what we now consider to be, you know, chemistry and, and other sciences came out of what we would now call alchemy. And those two were not as separate as we take them now to be, which is, this, this conversation is strange to me. I'm not sure what the real debate is between like fr what Frankenstein wants to do and what the establishment are claiming. Is it because they don't believe what he's saying is possible or is it because they're saying that it's immoral and against God and he shouldn't be trying it? Well, there, there is a, a really good line, I thought, where this is a little bit later on, maybe two or three scenes later, but the, the same uh, chubby-cheeked old geezer lecturer says to him, Mr. Frankenstein of Geneva, I warn you that what you are suggesting is not only illegal, it is immoral. Immoral, yeah. I just, I, so I just I, feel like I the really message like is, a bit, is a bit muddied here between, oh, you can't do this because it's impossible, it doesn't make any scientific sense, or, well, you shouldn't be doing this because it's against God or against natural I, I like natural that, order. though. I think it's, it's, it's a fun kind of thing of, you know, the, the temporal and the spiritual in kind of uh, intention with each other. But like there are a, a couple of lines actually, interestingly, that are kind of very much about like the, the rules are the rules for whatever reason. You know, it's like, I think it's fun that he says it's illegal first. So like that's, let's start there. And then like, <laughs> maybe, so this suggests that of course there are certain legal things that are immoral, but if they're legal, you can do them. Like there's a, and there's another bit later on when the, there's, there's a, some definite fear here in the movie of the rabble. Like, there's, this is a kind of an anti-democratic movie. It's pretty pro-aristocratic in certain ways, even though obviously it's like you're seeing a degraded aristocracy because Frankenstein doesn't want to acknowledge the limits proper to his kind of societal role as someone who's bound to steward the, the unwashed or whatever. But later on when the mob gets, you know, it's, 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 um, it's stander up and wants to, uh, wants to hang Frankenstein's sister. Like he's like, he says something to the effect of like, that's illegal. What about the courts? You know, it's like, instead of just like, oh shit, let's save her. It's like, there's a due process that has to be followed. <laughs> so he's, he's a, he's a Democrat. <laughs> he's like, yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. I'm not, I'm not going to stop this. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to stand at the corner and say, oh, surely there's a process that should be adhered to here. Well, anyway. Um, so when Frankenstein is saying all this stuff and he's getting the pushback from, uh, from old geezer, uh, Christopher Lee, I mean, sorry, uh, John Cleese, who's doing a chimpo shit Christopher Lee impression <laughs> as the, the prof, Professor Waldman kind of emerges from the shadows with his prosthetic buck teeth. I, I, I think when you kind of, I don't think they get bang for their buck out of John Cleese here. Like he's not John Cleesey enough. He doesn't look like John Cleese. He sounds like him, obviously, because he's got such a distinctive voice, but like, why bother? Like, why yeah. do they give him fake teeth? It's stupid. I mean, Maybe they he, thought it'd be distracting if they had a full-on Basil Fawlty, but... So I, I also find John Cleese's position kind of confusing. Like, he has tried this before, and at first he warms up to Frankenstein and is trying to give him advice and showing him, yes, this is totally possible. But then five minutes later, he's like, oh, but don't ever do it. It's really bad. It's going to result in abominations. 
I don't yeah, understand. He, he basically, on, on the one hand, he's like, he, I'm with you against the system. And then on the other hand, he's like, oh, but actually they're right. Exactly. I don't, and he I says, don't know what's going he shows on. Him, he shows him his monkey, <laughs> which is class. And the, the, the monkey comes back to life for a, a few seconds and it grabs his friend. Yeah, that's a cool We haven't talked about because his, his friend sucks. Um, Henry Clavel, I don't have much to say about him. He's just yeah, he's trying he's trying to pass anatomy, but he keeps fainting because he's, he's also about forty five years old. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He's like he's in college to pay for his grandkids' education. Like, uh, but so during all this, again, he's he's he shows him that this is basically something that that can work. Doesn't really show him why it's bad. Just tells him it's an abomination and then says, Life is life and death is death. He actually says that. That's a quote. Life is life and death is death. Which again, just like, oh, come on, man. That's a shit line. And then he shows him his notebook and he's like, Here's all the info, but you're not allowed oh, to have it. You can't have it. <laughs> you want this, don't you? And Victor Frankenstein then, of course, is getting all uh, excited about all this and he, he brings a kind of a frog back to life. And he Galvanism. Tells his, that was uh, a, real, that's a real thing, yeah. He, told his, he tells his friend about it. And then in another very, very, again, punch to the face of a line, his friend says, there's only one God, Victor. <laughs> Stupid. Then there's a scene that I actually thought was, was pretty fun, um, where they go to the poor house to try and vaccinate against cholera. Yeah, this bit um, uh, rings home a bit, doesn't it, now? Yeah, it's unbelievably topical. And uh, again, so this is where you see, the I think, a bit of an attempt to, to to raise or discuss class distinctions, and you have the the Walden character, Waldman, sorry, the John Cleese is totally unwilling to like entertain some poor, probably uneducated soul who doesn't understand the vaccine. He has no interest in explaining it to him. He's scared. He says, come on, it's just a small bit of cholera. And your man's like, I don't want cholera, you know? Well, he explains he it, but he's condescending is. about it. He's yeah, like, but he explains it in a just like, come on. He sighs say, and says, look, I have to give this to you so you don't die. Shut up, take it. It's odd, but it's way nastier than that. Like, yeah. it's aggressive. And of course, the, the poor house, I suppose it's a poor house, or maybe it's a sanitarium. It's filth, it's gross. And like a classic of the time, like just people moaning and on the ground. Yeah. And it's, it's really awful. And you think about like mandatory vaccines and then people's like fear and resistance to that. That's about as topical as it could get. I was watching that scene going like, Jesus, uh, too yeah. much, man, too much. But I did want to know, was that an AstraZeneca or a Moderna that uh, Christopher Lee had? <laughs> but anyway, your man decides... It, it was pure adrenochrome. It was just a syringe full of... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, you know what? John Cleese is probably on the adrenochrome. I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. He's dodgy out. Like, you know, one of, the, of all the... Of all the kind of like, um, uh, I don't know, far right Looney Tunes stuff to, to still be dining out on in the year of our Lord 2020. He still has a problem with Irish people. Can you believe that? He's like yeah. constantly makes anti-Irish comments online and stuff. For a, like, for a guy whose group were famous for sort of bucking against established ways of doing things. Now, in as much as they were all very privileged guys who went to what, Oxford or whatever, you know, at least they were seen as kind of firebrands to a degree when it came to their comedy and they were they were doing things that nobody had done before. And I mean, it, it happens to every generation, but just to watch them become, him specifically become such a reactionary is just sad. Yeah. Kind of inevitable. Yeah. These are the people who did the, uh, what was it, upper class tweet of the year competition? <laughs> that was a Monty Python sketch. Yeah. So anyway, then uh, the 
the town of Ingolstadt is overtaken with cholera and you get the, the heckling bloodthirsty mob as they uh, kill um, the De Niro character. So he's a, you know, a, they, they hang him. Is the hangings, there's two hangings in the movie and they're both really nasty actually. They're pretty uh, visceral. Um, so then Frankenstein tries to convince his friend to, to pursue the project of trying to bring back uh, human life. It's a, it's a very, very overacted scene. Lots of close-ups of his face again, his eyebrows going nuts. The music is, is just like, it, the, the, the score is very expressive. Again, it's trying to invoke like kind of 18th century romantic music. But like the point of romantic music was it was frequently like what they call program music. So it was set to a theme. It was designed to take you through a narrative or whatever, but we have visuals. So like the music can be dialed down significantly to add to what we're seeing rather than to try to invoke things that we're not seeing. But the music is just like, it's going full bore into the romantic kind of style. And it's just way too much again. So like exhausting camera work, exhausting overacting, exhausting music. And like, I like this movie because I like what it's trying to do but it needed a more capable director to understand how to wield these tools and to kind of calibrate and adjust the knobs up a little bit, down a little bit. As um, I was saying to you, Keen, before we started recording, like I think Joel Schumacher would have been a safer pair of hands for this, despite all of his <laughs> foibles. And like, yeah, he made Batman and Robin, which is among the worst movies ever made. But there was a time before that where I felt like he was like one of the really good kind of 90s stylists of high concept, good camp, you know, very um, visually arresting cinematography. And like the movie that I think kind of provides a visual and cinematographic, is that the term? Anyway, in terms of cinematography, the kind of map for this is Flatliners, which is a movie from 1990, I think, with Kiefer Sutherland. And it's actually about bringing people back from the dead. Yeah. But again, it has a lot of the kind of similar um, art, or at least it has a visual landscape that I think would work well for this with a more steady hand and assured tone uh, in the direction that I think, again, Brana just can't do because he does, I think he knows the, the composite pieces, but he puts them together in a way that's just like, it's exhausting, it's tiring. And speaking and again, of he, putting things yeah. together for, for oh. a segue, <laughs> is, it, is it John Cleese's brain that he takes? for the creature at this point? Because he uses like De Niro for most of it. And then he takes someone else's leg. I've never understood why, why does he have to cut the body up and take bits from different bodies? Yeah, like, in, in the book, good. he's but, trying to make some kind of perfect creature. He like, he selects all the best bits because he thinks it's going to be physically beautiful and, and tall and strong. But like if if you, I mean surely the best thing to do would be to get a fr the freshest corpse you can and just use that. Like why? I've never understood yeah. that. And the same thing when when he when he does the second revival with with Helena Bonham Carter. Like she's his bride. She he's in love with her, but he still like cuts bits off her and sticks other bits onto her. Well, he puts her head on the body of his sister. That's what he does. Yeah, that's right. Um, because she gets her heart pulled out of her chest. Oh, of okay, fair, oh, yeah, the, fair enough. The, mon the monster pulls her heart straight out of her chest. That makes a pretty a awesome sense. scene. And then the other sister is is hanged. I think she's the nurse. Um, she's the little, the brother's nurse. Well, in the book she is anyway. She's called Justine. Yeah, Justine, yeah. I thought she was a sister. I could be wrong. But she, yeah, she's definitely, she's living in the house with them anyway. 
so yeah, like you say, this is where we get the kind of creation scene. It's this is where like the movie can't help but to just go back to the the kind of nineteen thirty one James Whale Universal Boris Karloff. It's it's different, I guess, because he wants to make it feel a little bit more organic. The other one is is very stilted and 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 dry, you know, kind of like it's a it's a it's a very kind of stony place where this is more woody. It's a little bit more. Uh, He's got the, the, what did you say the name of the fluid is? The amniotic fluid. He's, he, they amniotic show him collecting fluid. it from basically women giving birth in, in the horrible hospital scene. Yeah, she's, there's a woman sitting in a chair just screaming and then a bucket is put underneath her. A whole those, scenes, of, uh, those are always the scariest scenes to me when I was a kid, like just ordinary life in, in times past. You know, like the, this, that scene in this film with the hospital just being horrible and scary and everybody screaming. And also the scene from the asylum in Dracula I just yeah couldn't stand like awful. oh my god is that what things were like back in the old days was was were all processes just terrible and everybody was just dirty and screaming all the time. After he gets the amniotic fluid in the bucket, he pays off a, a, a cheeky nurse who's getting her beak wet on the side. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> we we may ask what was that some like real uh, minor economic thing that was going on, but I mean, in cities in Europe at this time, there were the or they called the resurrection men who literally there was such a trade for bodies on the black market so that they could use them in, in hospitals and for training medical students that there was an, an, an underground scene, even in cities like London for like a great grave robbing, basically. Yeah. Um, so a couple of, couple of uh, fun things in the creation scene. We already mentioned the electric electric eels. So they're pretty class. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting, different stroke. Yeah, the stitching the together of the creature is, again, more kind of a, of a callback to the original movie than anything else. Um, I, I thought one, one of the things that I really liked about the electric eels was he throws them some, some meat. Yeah. And they all run to the meat and go mad. And then that's, how, that's what stimulates all the electricity. It's, it's just kind of just, again, the, this, this feverish kind of chowing down um and all of this is happening actually once one thing that i liked as i mentioned earlier on the city is kind of like the cholera has gotten to epidemic levels and so there's like a furious evacuation of the city and the, again the streets are packed everyone's running out and there's like his friend is like frankenstein you have to come leave and it's it's kind of fun that like because there's such a threat to existing life that people need to leave the city frankenstein is in there by himself creating life so it's, it's kind of like handy that he can do this kind of crazy and illegal thing because nobody's looking they're too busy but also like he's creating life while people are trying to escape the possibility of death but this is where now he's he's uh, again the humidity has gotten to his hair and it's mulleted up big time and he's gone topless he's running it around could have been the electricity as well from the eels <laughs> it sure could have so the abs are out now and he's very proud of himself. He's leaning. He's crawling around on top of this like sarcophagus type birthing chamber, like pounding on it. Live, it's why won't you live? It's it's yeah. So he's well, he's he's going between the sarcophagus kind of chamber, which has the monster in it, and he does in fact shout live, live, live. But he's also like going up to the nutsack that has. <laughs> it the looks like a giant. Yeah, that's what it looks it like. It looks like a massive scrotum, and he's banging on it to try to like release the fluid down into. Um, into uh, De Niro's kind of chamber. And again, the mullet is free flowing with every or exaggerated gesticulation. And that, so eventually then 
once the lightning comes and there's a the big thing, he walks away thinking, ah, bollocks, it hasn't worked. And then De Niro's dirty kind of gray hand smacks against the glass and he turns around. And then it's just like, I think probably everyone watching the movie for the first time in 94 was just like, ah, Kenneth, don't say it, don't say it. And then he <laughs> has to, he just has to say it's alive, which is not in the book. That's from the 1931 movie. And yes, it's iconic and it's legendary, but like Everybody it doesn't have it. to be in every Frankenstein movie. It doesn't have to be, but he, he can't help it. So then anyway, he lets, uh, he lets the monster out and Branna is topless and the monster is nude. Oh, this is the, just... yeah, the naked gooey hugging scene where they're slipping around and <laughs> the goo. And <laughs> they're, like... they're slipping and sliding in the goo. Yeah. And, uh, and it goes on for, say... it goes, this scene goes on for like an oddly long time and there's no soundtrack for it and everything just gets quiet and then... It was just like, are you going to stand up? Are you going to stop? Oh, I'm back down again. Oh, oh you down again. And there is, in fact, a little bit of, in a partridge moment, I couldn't help but notice, a bit of side monster willy. <laughs> They're trying desperately to, like, keep what, his knees up. A little bit of bush? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's unnecessary. And so this is, I think, a very bizarre scene. And, like, I'm not 100% sure what the hell's going on here. So, like, he he's, tries to help the monster stand up for about three to four minutes. It kind of doesn't work. And then he just decides to turn on him. And he yeah. says, what have I done? This has never he over to his journal. To Even in the book, I, I like, I'm, I'm sure it's probably better explained in the book, but like whether thematically or just in a strict plot level, it's like you built this thing. You've been looking at it for weeks. You put it together out of bits and pieces, thinking it was going to be beautiful. And then the second you turn it on, you're like, actually, no, no, it's disgusting and monstrous. And I mean, I, I suppose thematically what, that, what, what we're saying is he never really considered the reality of what he was doing. And once he saw it, he was like, I've done something that man was not meant to do. But on, on a plot level, it's like, dude, you've been looking at it. What did you think it was going to look like? What did you think it was going to be like? That, that's never made sense to me, the way he turns on yeah, it in a second. Yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a rapid fire shift from like monomaniacal intense fixation on achieving this thing. And then before he really has, I think by anyone's standards, like an opportunity to see and understand what the hell it is, he immediately just says, what have I done? Turns on the monster. He goes over to his journal, which I, I am a kind of a fan of this, like that, you know, these 18th century scientists are just like everything has to be catalogued we have to write everything down so he immediately goes over and writes that you know i think he i can't remember exactly but he probably describes the monster as an abomination almost immediately but the thing that he says that i think is probably interesting is he says it's malfunctional and pitiful so the pitiful part what was he maybe... expecting it to to be yeah, like exactly. or look like or like the pitiful part we might get, like that's a kind of a moment of, oh God, I didn't ever, you know, comprehend the the consequences or the reckoning of what I was about to create and I have done something wrong. But like the malfunctional part, that's more like, oh man, I made a guitar that doesn't play right. You was know? he like, expecting it to <laughs> wake up and immediately like speak like John Cleese and be like, oh, hello, old chap. You know, would well, you care for Maybe a he wanted it to, to join in on a few Hamlet's soliloquies with him. <laughs> and it didn't it couldn't stand up but like we get rid of the Irish <laughs> yeah so w one of the thing that's uh, kind of fun after this is that basically like within seconds he rejects the monster and the monster th uh, understands this somehow um, 
And so the monster kind of skulks away. He grabs a cloak, actually quite a class kind of coat thing with a big high collar. On I did it. wonder, like, is that one of Victor's own cloaks? Because it's massive. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, no questions uh, Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's just convenient, automatic <laughs> provided uh, class coat. Um, and there's a, there's a fun little scene. So the, the monster is kind of skulking off and he's... He's reckoning in his mind that like, you know, I, I'm pissed off and I'm upset and I'm going to try to escape people and, and all this. And they have a superimposed supercut of the crusty old lecture, lecturer giving Frankenstein like a good scene to for all of his uh, hubris and wrongs. And it's very TV movie. Like it's really you know, like, it's just, you know, like in a TV movie where like amongst their very limited special effects budget, they're like, we have seen for like, or we have a bank for know one or two scenes where we we superimpose two things on top of each other it's like there's no need for it it's very ham-fisted but it's it's good crack like i i couldn't help but ah brilliant look he's these are the warnings this is the result ah frankenstein you should have paid a bit of attention you know the the seeds are, uh, were planted and now you have to deal with it um i think de niro is okay like as the monster there's a pretty common complaint that like you for such a for such an iconic actor, like you can never see him as anything other than Robert De Niro, and to pay yeah. to play a, a role as monstrous and, you know, again, if it's it can be monstrous or it can be sympathetic or whatever, but it's supposed to be this kind of this thing that forces us to to confront and reckon with our humanity and what we consider to be human and monstrous and all that, and then you just have like, you know, the most <laughs> famous actor of the twentieth century. I find him. Wait, the, he's not he's not bad in this, but he's just distracting. It's like, I can't watch anything with Tom Cruise because he's just Tom Cruise. You're never going to... No, it, it's not a comment on him being a good or a bad actor. I just... Like, De Niro in, in a gangster film or some variant of that, yeah, I'll accept him. But there's a lot of things in which... I don't know. Miscast, I don't know if that's the word, but it's very distracting. Yeah, I, I think he's decent and I think he does a good job at invoking sympathy. Like, I do feel sympathy yeah. for the monster. He's no Karloff, but that's because Karloff was kind of a blank template. Like he wasn't an especially famous actor. And then he just got to become and embody this, you know, iconic character. Whereas De Niro, like, I know they put all that makeup on him and they try to like cover up his big De Niro face, but it comes through and his De Niro accent from Brooklyn. Like there's a few lines where he's off in the Swiss countryside, just being from Brooklyn and, you know, very clearly wanting to go home to Mars to have some spaghetti or whatever. It's just like, come on, you're just too Brooklyn. This is not like you're an Italian American. It's too strong. I feel sorry Does for him because he is doing a good effort and he is sympathetic and it's not, it's not like stunt casting or anything like that. It's not as bad as that, but no. they would have done better with some unknown actor. It would have been less distracting. There's a, there's a fun scene then when he, uh, he kind of uh, emerges out into the town, which has mysteriously been repopulated because I guess, you know, <laughs> it was only being emptied for, for the, because that was in the script and now it's not in the script anymore. So he goes up to a market and grabs an apple or something like that. And the, the, I believe it's a loaf of vendor, bread. <laughs> it's a loaf of bread. Yeah. He's just like, I like it. He's got this instinctive kind of like, Oh food. I know what that is. You know, like he hasn't, he, he's barely kind of waking up to his understanding of himself, but his base instincts towards nourishment or whatever are still there. And so anyway, they, they uncloak him and they really see that he's uh, ugly or whatever. And the townspeople are filters. They're all absolute <laughs> scum. And again, this is kind of like, again, not especially democratic instincts from Branagh as a director here, where it's just like, you know, the local rabble. They're, they're, they're very quick to judge and they love a bit of hostility and they want like, 
they want to see blood. Um, the woman so they says to jump- him, oh, you've got, you've got the cholera because you've got like a weird looking face with some scars on it, which in, in that moment makes sense. But, but later on, I think that undercuts how monstrous everybody thinks he is because he's not that, he doesn't look that, especially, you know, a few months later after he kind of, his scars clear up a little bit, they become less lurid. He doesn't look that much worse than any number of people with, you know, common diseases might have looked at that time. But also, like, if they're scared of him because he has cholera, what do you do to someone who's got a contagious disease? You get out of there. You don't try and jump on them and have a fight. Like, they all try and fight him. Um, and, and he does a class moment of super strength where he lobs some guy and yeah, throws him, yeah. like, you know, 10 I mean, or 12 it, feet into a wall. It's a class. And then he, run, he runs away, and he's got a kind of a class gatch because he's got uneven legs because one of the legs is uh, not from the original body. So he kind of hobbles and shuffles. Uh, and that's, I guess, some good physical acting from De Niro. Like, I think he embodies a kind of a composite, you know, human physicality quite well here. I don't, what do you think of the look of him? Good. Like, as, as a, a clearly another attempt to, different, to differentiate from the 1931 film, which obviously is, is iconic. I, I, they're clearly trying to do something different. I, I don't know that it's think, that memorable. It's realistic yeah. looking. It's, it's good. It's, re- it's, it's convincing makeup. But it's not. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I, th- I think ultimately, memorable. like, just the 1931 style mm-hmm. with the big square head and the bolts, and uh, it's just like it casts a shadow that nobody can get out of. So it's like you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're never going to match it. It's just too iconic. I think they do a good job making something look realistic. Like, there's a kind of a, there's a crazy moment later on where he starts pulling the stitches out of his face, which is kind of fun reminder that, like, you know, he's still, or he's a living organic being. And, you know, again, the, the kind of um, the stitch together, literally nature of him isn't total or permanent. So I thought that was kind of fun. Um, I guess just the De Niro face is just there. They Hard even to get like, they try to, yeah, like they, they deliberately put the stitching through his, like the side of his face through his mouth so that his lip is kind of pulled up and stuff again to try and remove, you know, that De Niro face where he's kind of got the, <laughs> he's got this, bottom lip kind of pulled up or whatever one of his like, eyes the, is like made up of like different colored corneas and, and that's pretty good it's kind of a cool yeah look. i i'm just trying to think like you're just it's still t- too easy to imagine him saying forget about it yeah i keep yeah i keep <laughs> expecting him to turn around and say yeah i'm, I'm walking here you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, let's go to vegas and gamble or whatever so I do, um, do we get the scene then when he goes out into the countryside and meets the family yeah, there's a few scenes with Helena Bottom Carter upset about Frankenstein not writing her in months and stuff. And she's very melodramatic and all. And she's convinced to go out to check on him and stuff. She thinks that he has cholera because she's heard about um, the outbreak there and stuff. And she's not doing good work here. But again, the script is crap. And she's, she's probably doing what she's told, which is to overact romantically. Then the monster goes out and starts hanging out in the, in the pig shed of a small family out in the woods who... There's a, the, they, in particular, they have a kindly old blind man, probably the granddad or whatever. <laughs> he plays a grand old little Protestant pipe. <laughs> he could go marching <laughs> oh, yes, on the yes, Garbahi yes. Road. <laughs> he could get his bowler hat out and the sash. <laughs> uh, and again, if he's off in Switzerland, he's probably, you know, orange is one of his favorite colors. Um, but they're, they're not Christian, I'd say, because they worship the good spirits of the forest. So I don't know what's going on there. I can't remember if that's in the book or not. I was like, why are these kids pagan? Um, <laughs> And when your man plays the, he's playing the pipes. I, I did call him in my in my notes for the show, Roddy Piper. 
Well, he's not especially rowdy. Oh, he's and, and the, the creature like learns how to read and stuff by peeping in the, he's living in the pig shed or something next to them and he's looking in. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm reminded of that, that very hated scene from 13th Warrior where oh, the, yeah. the guy learns how to speak uh, Viking languages by via, via some kind of a montage <laughs> around the campfire. I think this is, this is kind of permissible um, in the sense that he's not learning something. He's kind of tapping into existing knowledge. Yeah, and I think he, he says that. Does he make that explicit later on? Or am later I, on, yeah. Yeah, he said, because he still has, like, John Cleese's brain. <laughs> he, sits, he sits down, later on, he sits down in an ice cave with Frankenstein, and he, he becomes, the monster becomes a ratty piper of sorts. That's a great scene. I like that scene. Yeah, that's that. That's great, crack. He says to Frankenstein, like, "Well, what part of me is it that can play these pipe, this pipe, or yeah. this whistle, or whatever?" That's is a brilliant it, scene. That's where head? that's where he heart? gets is to. That's where, where De Niro most justifies himself for me. Yeah, I, I was agree. able to forget for two minutes that he was a sp- spaghetti slurper from, <laughs> from the upper hey, hey, west side. <laughs> I thought it was fun as well that like. It's 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 well done like that. He's not just learning to to read by looking at the the mother teaching the child to. She has a little chalkboard and she writes out friend and she she teaches her. Of course, again these lovely Swiss kids learning English, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> he it's fun that like he he then practices on his own time with Frankenstein's journal where he learns his own origin story. I mean, yeah, that's, that's cool. That's that's, that's, that's a, a neat. Fun. I don't know if that's from the book or not, but that's a very economic bit of storytelling. Yeah, it's tremendous fun as well that he's, he's kind of realizing this and he's, he's having a horrible reckoning. And then, of course, one day an evil landlord shows up. <laughs> I get kind of more class warfare stuff. Uh, this time, though, Branagh's trying to, like, you know, get, get one in the bank for the working men. The landlord is just a complete... I don't know if it's the landlord himself or the landlord's goon, but he's just like an absolute wanker. Tricorn hat wearer. Yeah, and he basically just comes up and says, like, hey, kid, where's your granddad? And she's like, uh, I'm not telling you. And he's like, do I need to go kick that old blind man's ass? He's, he's so straight out of Black 47, this guy. He's ready, he's ready to kick some peasants, some starving peasants out of their cottage. So the monster comes out and gives the landlord a good ass kicking. Some fun super strength on show again here. Always a big fan of that. But and it goes a bit Lou Ferrino on him. It sure does. Um, and then uh, the kids are scared of the monster and the dad comes home and tries to run him off. And... The monster is very sympathetic. He runs away scared and sad. I think De Niro, again, showing off the acting chops here, does a good job. And then he comes back and the family have gone and the house has been ransacked or whatever. So I guess, I don't know, either they're scared of him or his kind of attack on the landlord backfired or anyway, whatever. He gets all sad and he burns down the house and then he stands on front of actually a a pretty amazing shot of the house on fire. I guess it's kind of a nice A-frame cottage. And uh, the, the kind of, it's dusk. It's actually very, this is a very well done shot. And then in a super chimpo and cheesy moment, he says, I will have revenge, Frankenstein. <laughs> but I'm not sure why he's mad here. Again, so I think- Or why is he, he mad at Frankenstein in particular? He's just frustrated with his life and that's Frankenstein's fault in a general way. Yeah. I'm not sure. I I can understand it, but I think the movie doesn't do a good job at conveying either the primary motivations of Frankenstein or the monster in several key key moments. Anyway, so he goes on his his long march now through the uh, the Swiss kind of frozen tundra or whatever, 
Uh, it's unreal helicopter scenes here in the snow. Yeah, there's some nice, nice shots here. And I love the idea of the monster traversing the land, that he's kind of, again, he's an abomination of nature, but he's going to go into the midst of nature and he's seeing the world and great crack here. And uh, he's off to Geneva as revenge is a dish best served frozen. Yeah. No establishing shot needed. No, nope, <laughs> None. You're not going to get one. Don't look for it. So anyway, then uh, the little boy, uh, Frankenstein's younger brother, goes missing. There's some incredibly melodramatic scenes where everybody's in a tizzy trying to find him. They not go galloping on horses. It's fun. It's mega over-the-top stuff um, as they find him dead. And there's a lot of rain and lightning bolts and zooming shots and close-ups. And this is way overcooked. Again, this was another moment where Nadia was sitting on the couch watching with, with uh, this with me and she's just like, oh, blowing out, you know. <laughs> it's too much. It's way too much. The music is too much. The camera works too much. It's overacted. And the movie's been on for a while now, you know, and it's just like, I'm a, we're getting a bit tired. And so this is when Ian Holm has to go to bed because he's, you know, he's overcome with hysteria or whatever. Past his bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> so he he goes into bed, which is actually just an oven where he will be cooked alongside the turkey as he is now a Christmas ham. Uh, so then anyway, the what the the maid, I suppose, the Justine character anyway, whether she's a sister or maid, we can't remember. But she goes off to try and find the uh, the killer uh, and she goes to sleep in a barn because she's so tired. And then the monster finds her and plants some evidence on her to make it look like she's the one who killed the boy when actually it was him. And then, the, again, the wild and unhinged mob and their uh, unruly uh, kind of um, desire for justice is unleashed again. So we're back to being undemocratic and hating the working class and seeing them as something that needs to be controlled because they can't control themselves. So it's not very Swiss. The rule of law is not ruling here at all. Not exactly Protestant attitudes. These are people overcome with their emotions. Maybe they're Catholics. I mean, only Catholics could be so credulous and, and superstitious and... <laughs> Don't think there are any Catholics allowed in Geneva in the 1700s. I suppose not. Um, so yeah, this is not very, very, uh, they're not following the rules of predestiny here. Uh, predestination. <laughs> anyway, the, mon the monster shows up and has a kind of his first little short, um, what would you call it? Uh, showdown Frankenstein. And he says a line that's kind of stupid, but I enjoy. He says, the sea of ice, I will meet you there where he is also in hinting that, again, Mama Spaghetti will be served. <laughs> Frankenstein is like, oh, see, oh, the sea of ice. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, I'll, I'll meet you there. Well, in fairness, he does point to the gigantic snowy mountains <laughs> just over the hill. I think, I think the in the book, it's supposed to be Mont Blanc. Oh, yeah, is, probably, yeah. I think, I think the highest is, well, it's definitely the French, the highest mountain in France. But it's, yeah, it's, uh, I, think, I think it's the highest in all of Europe. I'm not 100% on that, though. A tall, a tall mountain in the French Alps, anyway. So anyway, Frankenstein packs up his horse. He has a kind of a, a conversation with the, with the family or whatever. They're like, what are you doing, Victor? You don't have to go or whatever. He's kind of he's starting to take responsibility now. He says like, you know, I created this. I have to end it. And so he goes off onto the quote unquote sea of ice. And he's looking around like, where's the monster? Where's the monster? And then the monster does a class jump oh, out of yeah. nowhere. A big mega jump and gives him a double axe handle smash. <laughs> he's totally, totally 1000% on a springboard. Like, oh yeah. No, I think no he's on, it's like a trampoline. Like his knees are up to his <laughs> chest almost. And it's, it's actually class. Like I loved it, but it's, it's very it's total WWE. Yeah, it's not Robert De Niro at all. He's coming <laughs> off the top rope with his two fists ready to come down. 
So that was, I love that. So it gives anyway Frankenstein a little bit of a, a small... There's nothing else like that one shot in the whole film. It's, it's like the only kind of goofy moment where, where the film isn't trying to be really pretentious and serious. And they're just like, ah, he's a monster. He jumps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Big jump. So that's class. So he takes a, he kind of has established a bit of a cave layer, which, and to get to it involves going down a slide. <laughs> Do you remember that? He, yeah. he throws Frankenstein down an ice slide. So anyway, I, like I'm t- at this moment now, I'm totally with it again. There's been yeah, a this, few this scene is amazing. We're shite, but I'm loving this. And so he sits down, and they all, they, he has a little fire, and they're on either side of it, and he plays them a little tune on the whistle, as we said. And 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 uh, Frankenstein's like, "Oh my God, you speak!" And he says, "Yes, I speak, and I read, and I, I can think. play the Fat Oaks Don." <laughs> yeah, he can dish out a Corn Peepo Kirky on the Fat Oaks Don, <laughs> <laughs> and he says, "I have come to know the ways of man." So I, that's a class line. Lap that up. Those are the kind of lines we want. Like, I find that the, the, some of the more heavy-handed dialogue coming from the monster makes sense. Like, it makes sense that his brain would be a bit of a, yes. a square wheel and it's moving slowly and clunkily. Um, at this point, like, I still think Frankenstein is too thin of a character. His motivations are shallow. We don't really know what's going on with him. Like, why? what, what does he think of? But De Niro's doing a good job here. This is his yeah. kind of dialogue dump. Uh, his accent pokes through, but, you know, again, that's... <laughs> I suppose we want De Niro. What are you going to do? So he says a couple of good lines here. He says, what of my soul? Do I have one? So he asks, he asks his maker, does he have a soul? Which is, again, that's a deep and philosophical kind of pondering to, for us to ruminate on in a wider context. He also says, who are these people of whom I am compromised? Which also, if you think about at a more abstract level, you know, we're kind of made up of those who came before us. Who are they? What, what of them has turned us into who we are? Again, it's good fun. And he says, uh, you gave me life, then left me to die. Who am I? Which is good fun. Frankenstein then says, if it is possible to right this wrong, then I will do it. So now Frankenstein is like, oh, shite. I, you know, I have to take responsibility here. And I'm acknowledging that there is a wrong that I can't just run away from. I tried that, didn't work. So I have to do something. Get into a little bit of a saggy middle section, like kind of lateral third here. Movie's too long, really. And this is somewhere some of the editing um, could come in. Uh, Kenneth Branagh is kind of telling Helena Bonham character like I have to take care of this and she's like oh but Victor you said we get married leave me alone all this kind of stuff again more maddening twirling camera expressive music just exhausting too much not too and and, and Bonham Carter is pretty overcooked here there's a good moment though when uh, the monster comes back and basically says Frankenstein like what's up you promised me resolution here and uh, Frankenstein says, like, no, I have to, I, I've been told I have to kind of go back to my wife, or whatever, I can't deal with you. And um, the monster says to him, like, if you don't give me what I want, death will be mild compared to what I'll do to you. He wants uh, a mate is what he wants, isn't it? He wants a mate, yeah. Which is I, I, it's kind of interesting, like, that, that that's innate in him, right? So that's saying something interesting about humanity that, again, we also... Also, he's seen, he's seen the loving family already, so he knows what he's missing. Yeah, that's fun. Then, then uh, Victor gets married. There's a mushy bollocks reconciliation scene between uh, Helena Bonham Carter and Kenneth Branagh, and they have a they have a <laughs> they have a, a nice Calvinist wedding with a pedo <laughs> creep <laughs> as the officiant. He's, he's got a Dutch choir boy from 1600s haircut and the kind of the the collar with the two the yeah. two uh, I don't know, like almost like a downward dicky bow. Yeah, he looks like and a We sat down to a, a fine Spartan meal of bread and water after this. And did you notice they got married in the in the 
uh, in Baron Frankenstein's bedroom because Ian Holland is still in, uh, he's still uh, bedridden from That's all right. the trauma and everything. And uh, Branna, for what it's worth, if, if there were such thing as wedding photos uh, for posterity, not that there were at the time, but Victor Frankenstein would be remembered forever as having gotten married with a dirty, massive, curly mullet because <laughs> it was, again, it's out of control at this stage. He created There's, it, but then he, he couldn't tame it, just like the monster. As, as he goes, so they go for a, a, a wedding night love fest and there's syrupy saccharine music playing. And amongst <laughs> the lines that Victor Frankenstein thinks will like really, you know, create the right mood to get down to business, he says to <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter, brother and sister, no more. Oh, yeah. That's Lad, yeah, that's come not, on. That's not the right time to be bringing that up. And so, kids, do you know what kills uh, Victor Frankenstein's boner, right, as they're about to sort of get into the horizontal mambo, as Stallone says in, uh, in uh, Demolition Man? What is it that kills it? I don't remember. Ah, it's old Kern Piapakarki is, is co- comes oh, through the window. The monster, yeah. the monster is out on the mountain playing the, the Fat Oak Stone. Fat Oak Stone has ruined many's a, many's a, a promising night. So, <laughs> Victor Frankenstein's like, hold on there, my love. I have to go deal with the monster and his whistle. <laughs> and she's like, ah, oh, come on, man. It's, it's our wedding night. And so he says, I, I have to deal with this. If they're in this kind of chalet, aren't they? Uh, a Swiss chalet. Yes, a Swiss chalet. Imagine <laughs> that, yeah. There's a Canadian joke for anybody who gets it. Oh, uh, I don't know no. that one. A Swiss chalet is like a, a kind of a chicken and rib franchise here. It's uh, oh. one of those very bizarre, like low-grade things that somehow became part of Canadian identity, like Tim Hortons. <laughs> yeah. so anyway the mon- this is all a trick by the monster he distracts Frankenstein and while Branna is out trying to find him he-, he goes into Helena Bonham Carter's room and pulls her heart out of her chest which I absolutely lapped up that was class and as this happens the music is just like going bananas it's completely nuts over the top and so now Frankenstein is, is totally he comes back and discovers her and he's the camera is furiously moving around to signify his descent, his true descent now into madness. And so he then does the kind of the second creation scene where he brings together the body of Justine, who'd been hanged, and the head of uh, his bride, who's just been killed. He, wasn't and, he presented with Justine's body earlier by the monster? when he was going to make a mate. And there's, that, there's a, quite a good moment where the monster brings back a line that he had said to him earlier about, oh, they're just raw materials. That's right, yeah. That's just, quite just a, me, that's a good materials, moment. No more. Yeah, that's a good moment. I should have taken note of that, fair play. Uh, so when he brings the, the kind of the bride to life, I think this, this is a gross scene where, again, I'm not sure what the gender politics of it are, but Branna, like, can, like Victor Frankenstein just says to her repeatedly, say my name, say my name. So, I don't know, it kind of comes across as very uh, patriarchal or something. So it's like, but they're basically, basically you have these two lads fighting over her and she only exists to be with one of them, to satisfy one of them. And up until this point, you know, I think we're sympathetic towards the monster. He wants, he wants companion. But what it comes down to is like two feathers fighting over the leading lady and... Just just for a moment there, it's, you're like, ah, is he really any better than Victor Frankenstein in this in this scenario in this scene? Because he he wants the creation of this new thing just to be his biddable mistress, like you know. I, well, the weird thing about it is that you have Frankenstein saying, "Say my name, say my name," and she's kind of confused, but she's initially kind of interested in maybe 
trying to find this part of herself or whatever. And then the monster shows up and just keeps saying, you are beautiful, you are beautiful, you are beautiful. And so she's lured in by that. And she goes over to him, touches his face. And it's just like, what's going on here? And then she touches her own face and realizes that that's what she is. So there's kind of like a moment where you think that she's being pulled in by the monster and then she looks back at Frankenstein and then she basically just rejects the two of them. I thought she was being pulled, attracted to him because she recognized that they were similar, but that can't be because she hasn't realized yet that she's revived. So yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. The only, the only takeaway is like two fellas fighting over her and she's just an object and she's been created for one or both of them just as a, as, as a thing with no agency yeah, and I don't and know she, if Brandon has, thinks of being like super feminist here or not. Maybe he does. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, the thing about it is she has no agency prior to this either. Yeah, but, I mean, ultimately, because of bad writing rather than deliberacy. This this is actually like probably the most horrifying scene in the whole movie. Like it's it's genuinely horrifying to see her self-immolate and then plunge yeah. to her doom. She throws herself off uh, out the window, and it's like. But what's I can at a deeper level, and again, this is maybe ham-fisted, but it's at least an interesting kind of an attempt at, at gender politics like that. Her reaction to two creeps fighting over is to kill herself. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's it's like she's doing the only thing she has power to do to fuck them both over, but it's still I'm not sure how I feel about it. Yeah. Again, it's 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 kind of gesturing towards something, but since there was no real groundwork laid with the Helena Bonham Carter character anyway. It's like, I don't know. It's just the most interesting thing is how for just for a moment you stop feeling sympathetic for the monster, you know? And I feel like, is he really no better than Frankenstein? At least when it comes to this one thing. And so like what that, he wanted in the creation of her is just as selfish and thoughtless as, you know, what Frankenstein did in the first place. Yeah. But demanding that she, I mean, she didn't ask to be created this way, just as he didn't. And he's, he's demanding that she be created to, to suit him and to give him something he wants. Anyway, that's, that's my takeaway from that scene. Yeah, I think you're probably right. So then we flash back to the, to the ship. We're kind of doing the wraparound at the, uh, you know, coming back to where we started. Frankenstein tells Aidan Quinn, all that I once loved is buried in a shallow grave at my hand. That was a fun little line. He basically says that like of the, the years, the monster has been sort of leading him north and north and north, leading kind of clues and crumbs here and there. And he wants to kind of take him out to the, the edge of the earth where probably, you know, they both have to meet their, their doom. Uh, anyway, the monster shows up. Um, and they, the monster kind of has to take care of the, Frankenstein just passes away in the boat. And then he, they kind of set up a funeral pyre for him. The monster cries. Which is very weird. I'm not, he starts crying and Aidan Quinn says, like, why do you weep? He says, he was my father. And then he's kind of out in the isolated in the snow by himself, having a, he's shrugging his shoulders, having, a, having an old cry. And then all of a sudden the, um, the, uh, the ice breaks and they kind of need to get away right away. And they're all hanging out, or not hanging out, they're all cast out into the water and they're trying to escape back onto the ship. And they try to invite the monster onto the ship. And he says, no, like, I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to go with you guys. And he gives out a good line here where he says, I am done with man. Done with man, yeah. And so he climbs onto the isolated iceberg that has the funeral pyre with Frankenstein on it. And he kind of like in a very heavy handed, uh, very totally over the top moment, he kind of, he saves the, fun the, the, the lighting torch 
from going into the water and then he lifts it sky high and in a completely wildly overactive moment like brings it down and lights the pyre up and then he stands into it himself and uh, I, I think it's fun to see the two lads burn away together I think in the book, the point is that like nobody should ever be able to, you know, follow Frankenstein's path. There should be no evidence left to show anybody that this can be done or how to do it. Now, he doesn't say that. I I don't know that you, I mean, you can infer that, I suppose, but I don't know that. uh, I feel like the motivation here is slightly different. It's fun that, you know, the, obviously the original title is Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Modern Prometheus, yeah. They die by fire, which is a bit fun for that. So anyway, the two lads burn away, that's grand. And then they turn to Aidan Quinn and say, where to now, Captain? And he kind of, he whispers with, with uh, uh, gravity. Home. In fairness, they, they built that one up quite well because during the whole scene and at the beginning, that first mate keeps asking him, like, can we turn back now? This is getting really dangerous. And like, they, they push it right to the wire. Even after everything he's heard from Frankenstein, he's still... He doesn't want to let go of his dream of, of, of his, his, his pride and his hubris and whatnot. And it's quite, it's like the very last thing that he says after he's seen everything. Yeah. So you're, you're not sure, is he going to, is he going to go for it or not? There's a genuine moment of indecision there. Yeah. And it, it, so the, you know, it's giving us a clear lesson that the Frankenstein story has broader application and it involves things like our, our, hubristic attempts to conquer nature and all that, and that we should be happy with what we have and, you know, recognize limitations, et cetera, et cetera. Just because you should do it, you never stop to think whether you, or just because you could do it, you never stop to think whether you should. In Good old uh, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say as well, during, the, there's, there's, you know, there's, it's some hectic and emotional scenes as the monster is flailing around in the water and they're deciding, you know, or he's kind of trying to flail his way back up onto the iceberg. That moment again, we have the unyielding bombastic score just punching us in the face repeatedly. It's tough. I gotta say, like, this is one soundtrack I'll be glad not to have to listen to again. Uh, totally over the top. But yeah, I think ultimately, Brana gives himself too much. He's on screen far too often he chews up everything he's got lots of soliloquies talking out loud to himself um too many zoomed up close-ups of his face acting the shit out of it um and again the direction is just like i think he understands what's required he just doesn't know how to dial it in at appropriate levels where the combination of the cinematography the music and the script or whatever like they clash with each other because it's everything is up to 11 almost all the time but i like that he understood what was good about the novel and was topical about the novel in, in a broader philosophical sense. I just think he didn't have the directorial skill to, to play those cards appropriately. And like I said, I think wildcard better director here would have been Joel Schumacher who had a more defined kind of visual style. And bizarrely, I know because he's kind of remembered for his worst sins, like he had a more, a steadier hand in weird ways. Uh, I think if you got somewhere between Flatliners and Batman and Robin. I mean, here, don't forget that he was deliberately brought in for Batman Forever to make it, things more kid-friendly. Like, that was his remit. That's what he was told to do because, God, Batman Returns is such a <laughs> such a bleak gothic film, like, for yeah, a but he, superhero he, franchise sequel. He did that, but he also, like, made a very 
pastiche postmodern movie that has tons of fun homoerotic overtones. <laughs> you know, like he got his shit in as well as, you know, making sure that they were able to sell Happy Meals with Batman yeah. tie-in toys. You know, like that was his, his remit for sure was like, we're going to make a, a, a tie-in merchandise fest. And they, I mean, that's why really when it comes down to it, because I love gimmicks and I love toys. Like I love Batman Forever because I remember when that movie came out in 1995, it was a toy bonanza and I was seven or whatever. So I was there to lap it up. But like, I think, you know, looking back on it now with a, with a more careful eye, like there's a lot that he was doing beyond that that obviously was way subtext for a seven-year-old. But when you watch it now, like that is such a gay movie, like in the best way. Like it's so awesome. Like just Two-Face and, and Riddler are just like a, a pair of old, they're, they're, they're a pair of old queens hanging out together. And there's, I mean, there's even a scene where they, they rob a jewelry store and they wear yeah. a bunch of pearls and crowns. He puts on a tiara or something, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's amazing. So just imagine if he had that kind of crack with the idea. Like, oh, look at that. <laughs> imagine if he had that kind of fun, like with, you know, a, a very homoerotic Kenneth Branagh performance quite frankly, and the, the possibility of father-son gay relationships, I don't know, whatever the fuck with, with the monster and Frankenstein, that'd be, you know, that, that just take it a little bit less seriously, but also use some of those visual touches and the sweeping camera and all that. I yeah. think there's fun to be had there. My Brand final thought is like that, because I have to compare it to Coppola's Dracula, because they just, that was the, the, the moment that, that it was, and it's interesting how I don't feel like Branagh is injecting any different themes. Like he's, he, he, in his head, he probably thinks he's doing a straight up adaptation, you know, as much as he understands the original text. Whereas Coppola was like, no, I'm going to stick a love story in here. I'm going to, you know, I mean, I mean, his Dracula is more, um, he, he, there's more fidelity to the book than most Draculas that had come out before. And he definitely went back to the book and took a lot of care with that. But at the same time, he was like, I'm interpreting this, as a love story, which is absolutely not in the book. And I know people always say that Dracula is a very erotic novel and there's this stuff going on under the on the surface and it's also, but it is, if it's there, it is absolutely subtext. And I think it was practically unconscious to Stoker himself, some of, some of the stuff that people now read into it. Whereas mm. in the film, you know, it there's there's stuff that wasn't in the book and, it, and that's his interpretation. But I, I think Branagh was not trying to do that. Branagh is like, this is the straight, direct line to the book as he sees it and therefore it's his own weaknesses that if 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 he fails in that it's because of his his weakness as a director rather than his intention yeah i also think that coppola when he made dracula was like an auteur in decline you know like he didn't have much left in the tank but he was still an auteur and he like you know him at 50 percent is better than a lot of people at 120 percent Brana isn't that, but he absolutely thinks he is. He thinks he's a visionary. He thinks he's, you know, a, an artiste and an auteur. And his vision, I suppose, or whatever, gets in the way of the movie rather than it being something that propels the movie or is, is a part of its signature kind of thing. Like, I, I felt his ego and pomposity throughout in, in ways that, like, I, I kind of like those big asshole directors who you know they make their movies that are theirs and they stand out because of that but this one was just like again it it was just too much everything was dialed up to 11 all the time and it was just brana and his abs and his mullet it's tiresome okay we'll leave it at that thanks very much cheers for having me 
Well, that's everything for this episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. Next week, all going well, it's going to be a kind of a pseudo-Christmassy special take on the 1977 film Close Encounters of the Strange... (laughs) Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I have loads to say about this. If you might remember, I was originally planning this one to be nothing more than a bonus episode, a short one. But upon watching the film, I've realised I had so much to say about this film's place in paranormal lore and the effect it had both like the influences on it and its own influence on the state of sort of UFO research and the abduction of phenomena in particular. I think I'm going to have a lot to say about that. So all going well, that will be our next episode. As always, please get in touch with us for comments and queries and politely worded corrections are always appreciated as well. On Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.